0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash trip for free shipping at 365-day returns.
1: Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. <laughs>
2: Welcome to the tennis podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph. My name is David Law, and the big news on the tennis scene at the moment is that Rafael Nadal is back. A ninth Monte Carlo title. Yes, you heard that correctly. Nine. One after eight, one before ten. <laughs> remarkable. What an exciting week for him and his fans though to get back in the winner's circle for the first time in three years. What happened to Novak Djokovic lost in his first match to Yuri Vesely? That was a shock. We're talking about those two enormous events we'll talk about a Andy Murray we'll take your questions, we'll talk about our predictions competition I'm particularly looking forward to that bit and our discussion point this week is what was the point in winning? That's in reference to Vesely's monumental victory over Novak Djokovic, followed by an immediate, pretty limp defeat. Catherine Whitakers in Monte Carlo still. Catherine, have you decided to just sort of live there now?
3: No, I I, I still can't afford that, David, no. Uh, And also, it was a bit overcast today, which I feel like getting some sort of refund from the Monte Carlo Tourist Board, they'd lulled me into a false sense of security, thinking that it was going to be glorious... And sunny every day, and then today there was there was rain, David. There was actual rain in Monte Carlo. So no, I'm ready to come home now.
2: Catherine, it was snowing here yesterday. Do you mind? It's April. <laughs> it was snowing. So, enough of your complaints. Um, we saw the television pictures. We saw the glorious panoramic views over the Mediterranean uh, in the background of the Monte Carlo Country Club. But anyway, Catherine Whittaker is in Monte Carlo. We're establishing that. She's coming home tomorrow. And you've been witnessing, as the rest of us have on TV, Rafael Nadal returning to something like the sort of form that we remember from the man.
3: Yes, it's been, ve- it's been a very, very interesting week because everybody's looking for this sort of definitive yardstick, aren't they, by which to measure Rafael Nadal in his performance. You can't you can't have Rafael Nadal today play Rafael Nadal of 2008 or 9 or 10, you know, oh, so... Imagine if you could. Let's do well, that. Well, exactly. That I mean, that like really is fun. the only definitive measure of whether he is back to his best. So we have all these um, inaccurate measures and we have, you know... Uh, Look, I don't want to take anything away. I think there have been huge strides made by Nadal this week and I think he's made a huge point. But I'm just going to reserve ultimate judgment until I've seen him play Djokovic on clay because that's what we didn't get to see this week. And it's been such a fascinating week for that reason because Djokovic went out early, because of the manner that he went out. Because I mean, this, this week has just created so many extra narratives in the clay court season i think it's been the best thing that could possibly happen for this portion of the year um yeah i, th- I think it's just been fascinating uh, and puts a completely different complexion on so many different storylines that we have coming up
2: and nobody picked that with djokovic at all did they
3: absolutely if except me if there, no you didn't david no
2: except me Let's just listen, shall we?
3: I am saying so, he's going to beat him. There you are. You are saying Gamal Monfils is going to knock out Djokovic in the third round. That's you heard me. going to happen. Wow. Well, at me. least there you are. at least I've pushed a bold prediction out of you for once.
2: So there's me predicting that uh, Novak Djokovic would be beaten in the third round by Gael Monfils. And given that it was uh, Uh, Yui Vesely who actually beat Novak Djokovic in the second round and then got absolutely smashed by Monfils in the next round, I was right.
3: I'm not not even going to address that. I'm just going to head straight on to talking about that match because, I mean, this is a preposterous suggestion uh, on the prediction front. It was, I mean... The, it feels so long ago now, and people are already starting to talk about it in sort of it, not in not in the same light that it was talked about at the time. Let me tell you, on the day, on Wednesday, when it happened, it was the biggest deal. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening knows that, because at the time, it was just the, the most enormous deal, the man that seemed completely unbeatable. And yes, you know, I'm the person that said on previous podcasts... Things happen, things can happen and do happen, and
2: you're not trying to claim that one as you
3: no, I'm absolutely not even I well, not even I, but you know, even acknowledging as I was that anything can happen, I really didn't think that that would happen um, and uh, yeah, it was look, Yuji Vezeli played brilliantly, and he did exactly he rose to the occasion, but that a- occasion was. Novak Djokovic not being at his best, and for the past few months that seemed, you know, eye issues in Dubai aside, which I feel is a complete blip that probably shouldn't even enter into our discussion, um, it seemed like the unthinkable for the past few weeks. That opportunity just hasn't been presented to anybody of Djokovic being sub-par, and that, that isn't to take away from Vesely because he had to take advantage of that glimmer of an opportunity, and he, boy, did he. But, wow, it you know, just knowing that Djokovic can have an off day, what... Amazing, what an amazing boost that must be for everybody else playing professional tennis at the moment.
2: Catherine, we're going to hear from Novak Djokovic in a moment. But are you saying that I don't get even the slightest smidgen bit of credit for that prediction last week on Monfils beating Nadal in the third round? I don't get anything.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, David.
2: I'll let you make your own minds up, listeners. Anyway, uh, Nadal, I mentioned him. He won the title. Uh, he defeated Dominic Team along the way. He beat Andy Murray in a three-setter. He then overcame Galmon Monfils in a really close first couple of sets anyway and then raced away with it, six love, in the third. This was a big deal for Rafael Nadal.
1: I said at the beginning of the season that I, I feel myself much better than the year before, but the victory here confirms that I am... Better and I am very happy. You know. It's a very very emotional week for me. Very important event. Probably Monte Carlo is one of the most important places in, in my career without any doubt. And uh, win again, again here after three years uh, is something so special for me. You know. So very happy for that. And I I am enjoying having emotionally. I have been working hard. No, I have been working hard since a long time ago, and you know, I say it enough. No, about the, the nerves that I spend, the anxious during during the matches. So uh, it's it's a work of every day to slow down that. No, and uh, it's a work of every day, and uh, the victories helps, and still not hundred percent perfect, but it's still much much better of everything. No, so uh, I don't have that feeling that I had last year on court. So very happy for that.
2: So, Catherine Nadal. Uh, I I was particularly taken by that audio that you got from his press conference today, because not only was it clear just how emotional he was in victory, we saw that on the court, the way he fell to his knees after just the most stunning forehand winner down the line. It was light rolling back the years for, for at least those few seconds. But also, once again, addressing the nerves that he suffered from over the last year, which even now, I still think: How can a guy who's won fourteen Grand Slam titles and been the overwhelming world number one at points in his career and won eight Monte Carlo titles before this, his ninth, how can a guy like that on this surface have suffered from nerves? But it just shows it can happen to anybody. Any golfer can get the yips. Any tennis player, and I think that's pretty what pretty much what Nadal had a year ago. It was it was the yips. He'd lost that that feeling of invincibility on this surface of if i play my best tennis really who can beat me and it wasn't it just wasn't there anymore and he's he's admitting to it and it looks as though it certainly looks as though from the way he's speaking and the way he's playing that he's he's coming through that now
3: well look i mean i think being a 14-time grand slam grand slam champion and being a 9-time roland garros champion creates a pressure, doesn't it, which can lead to the yips and can lead to nerves. I think I've I have as a mere mortal, I find that totally understandable. Playing with no pressure on your on your shoulders is completely nerveless. I mean this is a man that gets asked gets asked in every single press conference he does, are you back to your best? Are you back to the Nadal? That won all those French Opens. However the question is worded, that is the question that gets put to him. And and, And completely understandably so, that is what everybody wants to know in tennis. And as I say, unless Nadal now plays Nadal of a few years ago, there will never be a definitive answer to that. And Nadal is such a... I sort of hate this expression but I'm going to use it, and and in the present moment, he sort of almost has an allergic reaction to any question of of that type because he just says, you know, I, I don't do comparisons. I, I just don't look at it that way. But look, every time he's been asked a question along those lines this week or, you know, about how much his confidence is growing with every win and so on, his response has been something along the lines of, You know, let's not get carried away. I'm happy with how I played today. I feel like things are going in the right direction, but let's not get carried away. And today, after the victory over Monfils, after a ninth title here as first since 2012, that completely changed. It was almost sort of a, okay, you can get carried away now. I mean, you know, not carried away, but it was, okay. this is the real deal now. I'm happy to talk about... How happy I am, how emotional I am, what a big deal this is. Whereas every match up until that point, even when he'd beaten Murray, even when he'd beaten the reigning French Open champion, Vavrinka in a very bizarre match, uh, it was, you know, he was desperate to play it all down. And that completely changed today. I think he's happy now to be talked about as potentially being proverbially back, as it were.
2: And there was a real puffing the chest out in the way he spoke in that regard. I think is, is the point you're making, and also it, it did sort of shut up alias Bedene, didn't it? Who I, I don't think he meant any mischief by it as such, and I I, I just think he uh, in after the the loss he suffered to Nadal six three six three I think it was, he talked about Rafael Nadal's. Formerly formidable forehand, as he would have, uh, he was intimating it was. Just have a listen to this.
1: Seeing him struggling on the forehand side, I was trying to to change a bit because I know, like a few years ago, when he was ripping his forehand, that was his. Shot, but nowadays I think when you press his forehand, that's his weaker side. So I was then changing it a bit, which was um, yeah interesting. Nowadays he's struggling a bit more. It's uh, it's easier to go on the court because um, you can see you can see he's uh, he's not feeling great on the forehand side, and um, you know it's still a weapon in a way. But if he's under pressure, he's um, he's not the same player.
2: So there's Alias Benene, who. Yeah, got tangled up in that comment about Nadal's forehand. It did send the mind back to Greg Rzedski, I think, in 2002, the year that Pete Sampras retired at the US Open after winning the title there. And he played Rzedski on the way, he won a five-setter. And afterwards, Rzedski said, I think Pete Sampras is a st- half a step slower or a step and a half slower than he used to be. And three rounds later, Sampras had won the title. And there's a little bit of the same thing here. And yet the funny thing is, Catherine, it's possible that both of those statements are actually true.
3: Well, exactly. I mean, I would would, I would like to spring a little bit to the defence of Aliash Bedene here. First of all, I don't think there were any sour grapes at all in his comments. He was just asked a straight question and he gave a straight answer. I mean, almost the more chump-like thing to do would have been to say... Uh, no, no, no. Nadal was just brilliant today. He's just completely brilliant, and that's why I lost. And that wasn't what he was doing. He was just asked a very straight press conference, a straight question in that press conference about Nadal. Uh, the, a question that everyone has been asked this week. Everybody that's played Nadal has been asked, "Is it the same Nadal that you played a few years ago?" You know. As I said, this is just being fired at Nadal. At every other player this is the narrative that that people want and uh, he gave a very straight response which which was that you know he consulted widely before playing him and he was told you should attack the forehand and look even Nadal himself in something else he said in his press conference today he acknowledged that the forehand isn't quite where it was. He acknowledged that today's match specifically was a big step forward for the forehand. He knows that if he is to win French Open titles again, that forehand needs to get back to where it was. So he himself seems to have implicitly acknowledged that that is an issue, not necessarily an irreversible issue. But what I'm saying is, I don't think we should be too harsh on Aliash
2: Badene for, for his words No, you know what? I think it was refreshing to get a straight answer and a pretty considered one at that as well more more power to him uh, We also heard from the man most recently beaten by Nadal in that Monte Carlo final Gael Monfils Catherine had a word with him about Nadal too
3: There's been so much talk this week about whether Rafael Nadal is, is back You've played him then You've played him now What's your assessment of Rafael Nadal's level just now?
0: Well, I always say he was still there, you know. They they tried to uh, take him down a little bit, but uh, I think he showed people that uh, he's a big champion and uh, he's, uh, he's definitely uh, in the the mood to be uh, the champion.
2: So Monfils uh, had no doubts that this man is still to be a potent force in the future. It, it, it is fascinating, isn't it, to, to see Nadal coming back in a pretty similar way, Catherine, to the way that Roger Federer has come back over the last couple of years after being widely written off. And I, I think many people thought that that was it for Federer back in about 2013.
3: Yeah, it's very, it, 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 there, there are so many comparisons between those two, aren't there? And I, I, you know, I'm sure they don't, but I would... I I would love to imagine the image of those two sort of exchanging exchanging Texts. notes on it exactly behind the scenes. I mean, do you gosh. think they
2: text each other? Do you think that Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer text
3: each no, other? No, I think they're too uh, sort of classy for texting. or Well, they just I exchange
2: it, telepathic thoughts.
3: Yeah, I think it's all about the unspoken between those two. It's I mean I you know I I it makes me think of. Uh, McEnroe and Borg you know I didn't experience McEnroe and Borg at the time but I've seen them 20-30 years hence no 20-30 years hence and uh, what I see is two people that don't text and stay in touch on a day-to-day basis you know week in week out but when they do see one another uh, there is the the most enormous electricity in whatever room they're in when they meet for you know the first time that year or the first time that month or whatever. It's just the most incredible thing. And that's fully how I anticipate it being between Federer and Nadal in years to come. I just think they're too cool for text, maybe.
2: Um, I wonder if they are actually resident in each other's phones. You know, oh, I'm sure, i sure. Yeah, of course. I, I bet are. there is just a sort of raffer in Roger's phone and Roger in Rafa's phone. That's what I think. Anyway, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Uh, We have asked on Twitter, or I've asked, uh, a poll. I like polls. You may have uh, figured that. uh, About what does this mean? What does Monte Carlo mean, if anything, for the French Open? The fact that Djokovic lost early, having been the overwhelming best player in the world for the last couple of years. The fact that Nadal has won the title. Uh, Catherine... Judging by what you're saying, you don't think it means a jot.
3: Oh, absolutely. No, hang on. No, you've completely misread me. I think it means a lot. I just don't think it completely changes the complexion of the landscape because we haven't seen Rafa play Djokovic or play Djokovic at his best. I mean, a large part of the problem with Nadal over the past 12 months or so has been the confidence and has been the anxiety. And you know as he has kept on saying over the past year you can't magic confidence from nowhere you have to spark something and you know it's a chicken in an egg egg situation you need wins for confidence and you need confidence for wins so i see this as sparking a major challenge in nadal for the french open he is now a serious contender He's not the favourite for me. Novak Djokovic is still the favourite. Um, but I potentially do put him as the second favourite.
2: Oh, Catherine, I love this. I've just checked the uh, the poll results, the latest poll results. It's been going for an hour or two. Uh, we had 304 votes into At Tennis podcast on our poll. 50% each have said, so 50% have said yes. Uh, this has changed my view about what will happen at the French Open. 50% have said no. Uh, and have asked how. Uh, here's a few of the uh, the answers. Skip Schwartzman from Philadelphia says, "No, I continue to believe that Rafael Nadal could win the French Open, but not without being challenged." That six-love set, though, was shocking. Uh, Pliskovai says. I still think Novak is the favourite, but Rafa will be closer than I previously thought. Peter Tubb, who is from Chicago, he's an Ironman and a triathlete uh, and a Brit living in the United States, says, uh, no, Nadal remains the second favourite. His record in Paris says it all. Djokovic is rightly the favourite, but Nadal will always be a threat. Ali, an IndyCar car and tennis fanatic from Edinburgh, says, previously I thought Rafa would do well to get to the quarters, but now... If he's not in Novak's half of the draw, he'll get to the final. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be surprised, even though I think that, that both could face threats. I think if they are in opposite halves of the draw, I'd be surprised if they didn't reach the final and face each other there.
3: Well, hang on. That, I mean, that's making predictions about the draw, which we just can't do. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, well, well I hang think they're on, going to meet. I'm, I'm they're not going sure to meet what some, we're saying is that different. I mean, I'm saying he's the second favourite and Djokovic is the first favourite. So, if they're in opposite halves of the draw, I guess I'm predicting that the two of them will be in the final. So, I guess in a roundabout way, we're sort of in agreement, David.
2: No, I'm not in agreement with you at all. No way. Um, we'll talk about this in about a month's time. Just before the French Open, uh, now what, what else have we got to talk about? Andy Murray uh, was uh, decently into the semi-finals and did push Nadal all the way in that particular match. He looked a, a bit ropey early on, didn't he? He could have gone out in the first round of his uh, his tournament again uh, in Monte Carlo.
3: A bit ropey. I mean, he was pretty much out of the tournament. In the second match against Benoit Paire, he was well. Yes, okay, he was ropey in the first match against Pierre-Hugues came through that, and then he was setting a double breakdown against Benoit Paire, and then Benoit Paire came out to serve for the match and uh, failed to do so. I mean, he really was down and out, and it was very interesting though when he came to press after that match with Benoit Paire. I think everybody was expecting him to talk about, you know, how. How tricky the match was, how lacking in concentration he was. And the very first thing he said was, he was asked, you know, just for his general take on the match. And he said, it's a big win, is what it was. He knew that a win like that was what he needed to just sort of right the ship and refocus.
2: early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
3: Lucas himself and then when he came out against Ranich the next day, it was like a different person. It's like he'd grown two inches, grown up five years and become the Andy Murray that we've seen win Grand Sam titles and win the Davis Cup. And uh, it was very impressive. And he was that same Andy Murray against Rafael Nadal. I mean, in that first set, he was incredible against Rafael Nadal. And, and Nadal came back in real champion style and, and outlasted Murray a little bit, I think.
2: And actually, um, you know I think that that's where Nadal has made me remember him of old in the last week because the same happened against Dominic team. He just soaked it up he 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 took the first set beyond an hour against team and then just watched and waited for him to wilt against murray he 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 had to withstand that barrage of hitting in the first set, but eventually eked him out and then again. In, in the final, he's done the same again, a six-love third set. I mean, over the best of five sets in a baking-hot Paris, you can see why he's only ever lost two matches. If he's in this sort of form, yeah, it is going to take a huge effort to stop him.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I certainly think uh, mentioning the conditions is significant. I think had it been a hot, sunny day, I know those are conditions that also on feasts perhaps enjoys but had it been a hot sunny day today in Monte Carlo I do think that would have been a significantly less tight match I think those conditions today was really quite as much as I'd love to be smug about the weather in Monte Carlo it has been glorious all week today was really quite miserable it was really damp a bit chilly very overcast all day it was not what Nadal would have wanted to see waking up this morning um, and if it is hot and trampoline-like, in your words, David, in Paris, I think, yeah, he is going to be incredibly tough to stop once again.
2: He is uh, Andy Murray as well. Uh, was it you, Catherine, who who asked him whether he has been at all irritated about uh, the suggestions that his recent fatherhood may have uh, have impinged on his his performances at all? Was it you asked that?
3: It was me, but apparently Oliver Holt of the Daily Mail got there before me in an interview that was published just yester- yesterday, very much focusing on, uh, on that line of questioning as well. So, you know, not just me thinking along those lines.
2: No. Uh, well, anyway, here's what Andy Murray had to say in answer to Catherine's question.
1: For me, I don't think that has anything to do with it. Because if that was the case, then you know the Davis Cup, I would have played rubbish. You know that was immediately after it, uh, after the birth. So you know, and I played well there. That was, that was really the best match I have played in the last uh, last couple of months. So I, d- I don't think that has anything to do with it. You know, it's happened to me in the past. Before, I, you know, I had some, some tough losses. Um, even after I won Wimbledon, you know, had some some tough losses before the U.S. Open that year. It's not the first time that's happened, you know, but normally I've found a way to turn it around and I have absolutely no doubt that I'll do the same again this time.
2: So there's uh, Andy Murray talking about, um, yeah, that as that a talking point. I know that you and I have spoken a number of times ab- about this uh, specific issue. I personally think it is fair game to ask a player whether. Uh, an issue in his life or not an issue, a, a development in his life has influenced or not his performances and to comment on it or speculate upon it. I know you you think maybe it's, uh, it's uh, not the best.
3: I certainly think it's fine to ask. I just think that when he says, no, I don't think that it's a factor at all, that sort of puts it to bed. I think it's absolutely fine that the question be asked. I just think that if he says, if he dampens the debate down somewhat, and then there's very little left to speculate about, because he is a very private person, we don't know much about his private life. He wants it that way. I'm totally comfortable with it that way. I think there's very little basis on which to speculate. Look, of course, it could be a factor, whether he acknowledges it or not, it could be. But I don't, think the debate can progress much beyond there because we've got no knowledge on which to progress it.
2: Roger Federer, Catherine Whitaker, very briefly on Roger because uh, he, he had a decent run on his return from the knee surgery he's had. We'll hear from him in a second. I, I, I tell you what, when you listen to this audio, let's just hear hear it straight away. What strikes me about Roger Federer is that No matter what happens on the court, you never get the feeling that he's going through the sort of doubts that afflicted Nadal a year ago. And even when he was going through his rough patch, uh, by and large, the way he talks, you feel as though it's all in safe hands, it's all under control. This is after he just lost a very tight battle to Joe Wilfred Songa.
1: I thought I was going to win the match maybe after the first set. I thought I was going to win the match maybe at the beginning of the third. But that doesn't matter, really. It was... uh... It was a good match. It was nice to play an intense match. I'm happy how the body reacted. Um, So many good things this week. It's all positive for me. I know where I'm at now. I hope my knee and my body is going to be okay, you know, in the next couple of days. So things are really good right now. And uh, of course, it was unfortunate because I had my chances. But this tournament really doesn't matter at all if I missed or not those chances.
2: Roger Federer, just the bigger picture. Every single time, he, he just doesn't get hung up on a loss, on the way a result goes. At least publicly, at least.
3: Yeah, it's it's life affirming stuff, isn't it? From Roger Federer, he just is the most self assured person, you know, uh, you could possibly hear from in a press conference. Yeah, that's without being sort of n- not satisfyingly dis- disappointed with having lost. He definitely was. Very disappointed to have lost to Joe Wurzonga. His his reaction to uh, to throwing away a break point uh, in that deciding set when he tossed his racket into the net, that tells you everything. He was disappointed. He did his classic thing of coming to press straight away, you know, just wanting to get it out of the way. Usually he takes pretty long time to come to press. But then when he got there, I think everybody was expecting a... Uh, a slightly um, het-up dismissive Roger Federer, but when he got there, he was just, you know, singing the joys of life. He sounded like the happiest man uh, in the Monte Carlo Country Club. He's just so delighted I, with with how this surgery has gone, with how his body has responded to the surgery. He's made no, um, made no bones about the fact that he was really disappointed in himself I think that he even had to have surgery he said the words I had really hoped to go through my whole career without surgery and I was taking a pride in that Um, so I think it was quite a thing for him to have to come to terms with laparoscopic or not you know serious or not I think just the admission that Roger Federer requires surgery. And he did refer to himself in the third person in his preview press conference. Um, You know, Roger Federer requires the S word, I think was a really, really big deal for him mentally. Um, So I think he's just delighted at himself that he's come back from it so well and so quickly.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, watching him move around the court, you would never know. It may be a little bit rusty and, and all the rest of it. Who wouldn't be? But certainly looks as though Roger Federer has dealt with that situation. And, and fingers crossed, should be physically okay for the rest of the clay court season, the grass to follow, and all the rest of the year. Here's hoping. Now, Catherine, the Fed Cup has got its finalists. Now, after a fabulous weekend of matches, the Czech Republic... Uh, coming through eventually in their tie, and then France doing so as well. My goodness, those two ties were close. And... uh First of all, it was uh, the Czech Republic going to Switzerland, winning it 3-2, and uh, some amazing performances from the Swiss player Victoria Golovic, who is 129 in the world, but beat Karolina Pliskova and Barbara Strytseva uh, in three set wins to give Switzerland a chance, but eventually joined up with Martina Hingis, and they couldn't pull it out in the fifth rubber of that one. So Pliskova, Strytseva, and Hradecka eventually did the job for the Czech Republic, and they were now face France in the final France beating the other fairy tale uh, team of the competition the Netherlands 3-2 and again Kiki Burton's just belying her ranking of 96 in the world to win both of her singles rubbers against Caroline Garcia and Christine Mladenovic. But uh, eventually the doubles pairing of Garcia and Mladenovic winning in three sets over Burtons and Hogenkamp. So France against the Czech Republic, they are great Fed Cup teams, aren't they, these? And uh, it's been an amazing weekend, not not least the 4-0 victory for the United States in Australia. I mean, that is some win
3: some win uh, mirroring of course the uh, the Davis Cup tie that was played uh, recently between uh, USA and Australia and Australian soil Re- i mean come on the Australians have got to be really disappointed with that they've got Gavril over they've of course got Sam Stozer you know the uh, Jim Legideis over that's that's really disappointing for them i think you know USA've got a strong team but that they're going to have some, uh, a bit of soul-searching after that. Czech Republic just seemed to be this unstoppable train with this just incredible depth of the, the pool of talent they have. is so deep. Um, it's just incredible. And, uh, yeah, Amelie Moresmo for France has justified her not being there with Andy Murray this week, hasn't she? Because she's been doing good work as captain of the French Fed Cup team.
2: That's right. Catherine... We have a talking point for this week that has been inspired by our listener, Nick Whittaker, who's uh, says on Ooh. Twitter about himself, uh, trying my best to be interesting. Uh, I'm interested in tennis, football, pop and PR. And he's from Birmingham. So he's all right by me. That is but an
3: eclectic he, mis- mix of is. interests.
2: Yes, it is. No doubt he's a West Bromwich Albion fan. He must be. No. Uh, he oh. Whoa no, there, he
3: he's a Whitaker, so.
2: Mm, yeah, well, he's no relation to you, spells it differently. Uh, and also, the particular uh, suggestion that he's come up with for a talking point is an extremely good one, uh, I think, anyway. Hashtag, what was the point in winning? And that is in relation to, uh, how did you describe him earlier? I called him Yuri Vesely, you called him Yizhi Vesely, right?
3: Yizhi Vesely, yes. Yeah, I believe that's, I mean, as you said on Twitter earlier um, this week, I did a junior event. Well, well, he was a junior at the time. I certainly wasn't a junior. Well, more junior to what I am now, but he, there was a Champion Store event a few years ago where it was sort of eight Champion Store players alongside the top eight juniors in the world. And Yuji Vesely was there as the world number two junior And I think this was back in 2010 or 11. And uh, I believe from that that he pronounced his name Yuji.
2: All right, fine. Uh, You were, I imagine, not too surprised to see the performance that he managed to come up with against Djokovic uh, then. However, he most certainly was.
1: I'm just very, uh, very happy. You know, it's something, uh, something amazing. Actually, uh, when I went on court, you know, I had completely different thinking. Like uh, I hope to win a game, or you know, I really hope to do well. But I really had no idea that I really would be would be able to to be Novak today. So for me, it's uh, just something what I uh, what I still can't believe that it really happened. <laughs>
2: So that is Vesely talking about his big win over Novak Djokovic. I love that. Just didn't even think he was going to get games at one point when he went into that, Catherine. But he promptly lost in the very next round to on Feast. I think he wasn't 100% fit by the looks of things. But it did send the mind back to just how many similar situations we've seen like this, where somebody has the win of their lives and then they go and lose in the next round. And you just kind of think, well, hold on. You've just knocked the best player in the world out of the tournament and we've got nothing else to show for it we've you know you've got that on your mantelpiece and it will be next to your name for the rest of your life but you didn't go on and do anything with it uh so nick Whitaker said i think we need to have a hashtag what was the point in winning and uh, so that's exactly what we've got catherine one or two people actually didn't like this uh, suggestion because as carrie says uh, the point in winning is getting the win this is a kind of a crummy question which takes away from a big achievement so that's me told Catherine Whitaker. I think we'll we'll stop stop it all right there, shall we? Well, um no, actually Carrie, we're going to carry on anyway because I think it's an interesting talking point. Remember when Nadal uh has lost at Wimbledon the last few years? One thinks of Lucas Russell smashing him off the court, Steve Darcy uh, beating him, Nick Kyrgios a couple of years ago, and then Dustin Brown most recently. I think every single one of those four players, Catherine, has ended up losing their very next match.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, it doesn't. It, it, you don't need to necessarily go on to win your next match in order to justify to the world you're beating a beloved um, treasure of a tennis player like Rafael Nadal. I think the most disappointing of those was probably Steve Darcy, who ended up pulling out of his next round match. I mean, I think that really, really probably would have been tough for Nadal to take, sort of going, oh, right, well, neither of us are playing playing in the second round i mean but i mean yeah that's a tough pill to swallow but the others i mean yes it was disappointing because i think obviously you create hype by beating a top seed and then that balloon is rather burst but look they don't owe anyone to any anybody anything to anyone by by pulling off these these big wins you know they are what they are
2: they are what they are. However, uh, we also have Hannah going, who's uh, a librarian, a tennis fan, a theatre goer and a jogger, but a slow one, she says. Uh, and uh, she says the Isna Mahu Marathon 7068 over 11 hours of action and then Isner could barely walk the next day, so he immediately lost in the next round. David Marino is a German-Spanish stroke Spanish journalist who is uh, uh, a fan of Atletico Madrid. Remembers Gilbert Schaller, the Austrian player, beating Sampras at the French Open and then losing in the next round. Also remembers Andre Chesnikov saving nine match points in the Davis Cup. Uh, in 1995, and says that that deprived us of Stick and Becker against Sampras and Agassiz. Well, it's not hardly Chesnikov's fault, is it? He he He's quite happy to have got to the final. Uh, Kyle Edmund Fan says, what about when Stakovsky beat Federer at Wimbledon and lost in the next round? Yeah, that's a, that's one I remember as well. And Richard Woodward says Martina Hingis beat the Williams sisters back-to-back and then lost the Australian Open final to Capriati straight afterwards. It happens a lot, Catherine Whitaker. So, you know, I mean you beat me and you immediately lost to your brother. So I mean you might as well not have bothered.
3: I don't even count the losses to my brother anymore, David. They're just, you know, that they're, they're in a separate category of let's just let's just say, David, that you and my brother are not in the same category of opponent in my, in my mind. Is that podcast over? Is that is that pod, podcast partnership over? Oh dear!
2: I don't, what are you trying to say?
3: <laughs> I think I think I've made it perfectly clear. Um, yeah, I, f- I fear that might be podcast over. Sorry, I'll listeners. have
2: you know, No, no, no. Wait a minute! I'll have you know, Catherine Whitaker, I am back. I am, ba- you think now Nadal is back. You comparing I yourself to back.
3: Rafael Nadal?
2: Yeah, I am telling you, I have not. I had not played tennis since that humiliating, demoralizing, disgraceful loss to you about a year and a half ago. Until a week ago, I played tennis for the first time since then. A week ago, and I have fallen in love with the sport all over again. I tell you, I I'd forgotten how good it is to play tennis. I've joined the local club. I've started looking on the internet for for like the the clothes, obviously in, in, in huge freak sized uh, shops, you know. Um, but I, I'm want to play the game all the time. It's it's a it's a great game. And well, I mean, as, breaking as well as news,
3: lo- as, tennis podcast listeners: David Law realizes tennis is a great sport.
2: And, and I mean, obviously, I've got a motivation because this rematch is on. I'm telling you.
3: Okay, well, you might be back, David, but I never went away.
2: All right, fine. Well, anyway... Enough of that. Let's talk about the predictions, Danny, shall we? <laughs> That's a bit safer ground for me at the moment. Uh, you may or may not know that uh, on Twitter, at Tennis Podcast, we decided to launch a, uh, a a daily predictions competition. So we have a match of the day at all the uh, the Masters uh, 1000 events and all the Premier Fives and Premier Manitaries and all the Grand Slams. It's going to be Catherine against myself, against student Matt, and uh, against you lot, because we run a poll uh, to find out what you think is going to be the outcome in sort of Nadal in two or three sets or Monfils in two or three sets we run a poll whichever is the most popular of the answers that's the listeners predictions uh pick and uh then Catherine Matt and I give it ours and here are the latest standings after one event in reverse order Catherine Whitaker, 13 points student Matt 18 points just a five-point gap there. Uh, then in second comes the listeners. And then top of the standings after one round is me. 26 points. I've got double your points, Catherine, so far.
3: There's nothing more gracious than someone reading out the point standing in which they themselves lead is their hash, <laughs> hashtag humble
2: Yeah, so there we are. Listeners, you have a bit of work to do to make up the six-point gap on me, but not as much work as Catherine. Uh, Now, to just finish this episode of the Tennis Podcast, Catherine, just a little word for Tommy Haas, who has just undergone his ninth surgery. And this one was on a torn ligament in his foot. He's going to be out for six months. He's 38 years old, and he's promising that he's coming back i love that guy
3: well he's promising that he's going to try isn't he he um yeah he's he's realistic he's he's not a delusional man you know he knows how hard it's going to be but he's promising he's going to give it his all to come back and roger federer mentioned him this week several times in all the questions that he was fired about his surgery he said that he actually you know he sought he sought some counsel from Tommy Haas, <laughs> from an expert in coming back from surgery. I know he has a lot of respect for him and what he's done. Um, so, yeah, if you're respected uh, by Roger Federer, then, uh, yeah, that says something. So he is, he's a marvel. He really is. And uh, But as Federer said, you know, and as we, as we quoted him uh, in the last podcast, you know, Tommy Haas is... Because of all the injuries he's had in his career, his canister for a man in his mid-30s is relatively full, isn't it? So if he can find his way back from this foot surgery, energy-wise, you know, he's got enough left in the canister for another couple of years of tennis. So let that be your incentive, Tommy.
2: Yeah, and just again to draw another parallel between myself and one of the former top tennis tennis players in the world – I haven't played for a year and a half, so my canister's all over the shop, too. I mean, I'm really ready for this rematch, Catherine. You name the time, the place, the venue, the surface. I'll beat you on anything.
3: Wow, I'm really glad that went down on record. I'm just going to say nothing to that because you've, yeah, you've put that in audio writing. There it is.
2: I tell you what, let's run a poll for, to, as to which surface this has got to be played on, right? Which surface do you want Catherine Whittaker against David well, Law Hang on, if, there, if the
3: listeners vote grass, then where are we going to find a, a a grass court willing to take us in your gangly footwork, David? You'd make mincemeat of a grass court.
2: I know just the place. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Catherine Whittaker's on her way home from Monte Carlo. I'm staying put, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>